Just because of who you are And not what What you've done Lord I Bless you For you are God And God alone And beside you There's no one Lord I Worship you Many times I've done wrong, but you've never left me alone. That's why I sing this song. Oh, 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 oh God, I praise you. Just because of who you are and not for what you've done, Lord, I bless you. For you are God and God alone, and beside you there's no one, I worship you. Many times I've done wrong, but you've never left me alone. That's why I sing this song. Oh, 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 oh God, I praise you when I cannot see my way. You make the midnight's day, Lord, I bless you. When I need a real and true friend, you show your love again and again. I worship you. Your compassion faileth not. Over every trial I've got your promise, victory. true friend you show your love for me again and again Lord I worship you your compassion faileth not over every trial I've got your promise victory oh Son 
keep me safe in your loving arms under the shadow of your wings I'm because of who you are and not for what you've done Lord I bless you for you are God and God alone and beside you there's no one I worship you for I've done so many things wrong Yet you've never left me alone, and I praise your holy name. Oh, 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 God, I praise you. Oh, 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 message today is entitled perfect faith from symbols to salvation from symbols to salvation let me let me give you the preamble and then we'll have a word of prayer but the enemy would have us focus on the symbols symbolism and emblems of our Christian faith instead of placing our faith in a perfect Savior you see, this is a natural contentment on the part of mankind to produce and proudly possess a shallow, insufficient form of righteousness instead of humbly accepting the gift of the genuine article from God through a perfect faith in his Christ. What am I trying to say this morning? I guess my thesis this morning, the argument that I'm presenting this morning is that the devil would have you lose your salvation by assuming you're saved because you have symbolism, a form of Christianity, a form of knowing God. And, it's, and what makes it so dangerous is that it can be anything, and not necessarily a bad thing, but if it becomes an idol, it's an evil thing. And it could be many times things that are associated with God. <clears throat> this is the demanding and urgent challenge that the Apostle Paul passionately takes on in the book of Galatians. When we run up to them, we find them seated at a table, I can imagine, sometime in the year 48 AD, with a parchment spread out before him and a pen in his hand. He's writing the churches of Galatia, and to readers he expressly calls Galatians. You see, there is an ongoing debate as to who, even today, there's an ongoing debate as to who the Galatians that Paul was addressing. Who were these people? 
In Paul's time, the word Galatians had both an ethnic and a political meaning. You see, some hold that Paul was addressing the ethnic Galatians who were actually uh, Celtics who migrated from Central Europe to Asia Minor in the third century BC. They settled in the area around Ankaria, the capital of present-day Turkey. Others, however, believe that the apostle was addressing the people of the Roman providence called Galatia that was larger in a geographical area than the original ethnic area. This territory to the south was not ethnically Galatian and was included in the providence of Pisda as well as sections of Pergora and Lyconia, which were formerly part of the political Galatia on the map. There is no, there is, the debate goes back and forth and really it's not that important because the thing that is important is that there was no uncertainty as to the intent and purpose of what his letter to the Galatians was trying to address. You see, apparently Paul became aware of a perversion of the gospel of grace that was actively affecting the Galatian churches. I'm just trying to give you background because we're going to get deep in the word today. Is that okay? I'm going to be teaching more than preaching today as we examine this. False teachers who had come to Galatia since Paul's ministry there were advocating salvation by works of the law. That is by keeping the law, specific emphasis being placed on the Jewish rite of circumcision. We meet up with Paul having already established his apostolic call and apostolic confirmation in chapters one and two. We meet up with him in chapter three where he begins to address the need of moving from symbols to symbolism. From symbols to symbolism. And you might go, what does circumcision have to do with me? Hang on, because I'm going somewhere and I'm coming down your street. Everybody plays a fool sometimes. No exception to the rule. Listen, baby, it may be factual, it may be cruel. I ain't lying. Everybody, everybody, everybody plays the fool. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1 in Galatians, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? That's powerful. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, who duped you? Who, who has hoodwinked you? Who has conned you? Who has got over on you? Who has run a Murphy, no pun intended, who has run a Murphy on you? Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? You see, Paul is not getting on the Galatians. Paul is not saying that the Galatians were foolish and that they lacked intelligence. But instead, Paul is suggesting that they lacked wisdom. Hmm? Paul is left wondering what had prevented the Galatians from recalling the gospel of the crucified Christ. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes we forget the simple things. Sometimes we forget the important things. Sometimes we make the foolish things important. And the important things we look at as being foolish. But before you and I go and get down on the Galatians, we got to remember that everybody 
plays a fool sometimes. For we came to Jesus, each and every single one of us came to Jesus because some man or woman came and whether it was through preaching or teaching in a crusade or Bible study, they systematically laid down and laid out the helplessness of our sinful state, of our sinful state, and recognizing that we could do nothing in our own to change it because we already tried. It wasn't something that we were dealing with in theory, but we had understood by experience, I can't change the jacked up person that I am. Oh, I can modify my behavior for a little while, but give me time with the right temptation and the right circumstances, and I'm going to fall right back in to who I really am. Because a leopard, a snake, you and I cannot change our spots. We're shady. Oh, I know we look good. But we're shady, we're crooked, we're perverse. And that's who we are. We can't change. And so coming to that realization, we came to a place where we said, I can't help myself. I'm tired of being tired. And we threw ourselves at the foot of the cross. And we said, Lord, if you would take me just as I am, if you would begin to do for me what I cannot do for myself, I'll put my trust in you, Jesus. That's how we started out. That's the gospel. But then we get to hanging around this thing. And somehow what is clear becomes confusing. That's the gift that man has. You know that. That's why when you ever look at a political debate, they can both bring out facts and figures on the same issue. They both cart out experts on the same issue and each and every single time have two totally diametrically opposed opinions on how to solve the one problem. We make everything confusing. One Bible and look how many denominations we got. That's everything man does. We, everything we do, we mess it up. We make it confusing. That's why there's so much discontention. That's why there's so much contention. That's why there's so much aggression. Because everybody's got an opinion and most of them stink. Hmm? Just come to Jesus. Trade in, confess my sin. Believe in the Christ. Trade in my unrighteousness for his righteousness. And yet and still we've made it complicated we've made it complicated and it's not just the Christian faith you look at any major faith and there's sex in it you look at the Muslim you have the Sunnis and the Shiites it's just the nature of man even when it's written down and stated we will confuse it So we have made it confusing. We came, we throw ourselves down at the Christ, and then somehow, somehow we lose our way and we change that. We change the process. Hmm. We try to work it out ourselves instead of trusting God and his Savior who is perfect in all ways. Hmm? And we reject the Christ 
whose character was the very template of the law. You're saying, what? How do I know that Christ's character was the template of the law? You didn't know that? You see, even in this thing right here, when you really, at a glance, you would begin to think that it's a debate between the law and grace. But see, it's deeper than that. It's so much deeper than that. Because God's not going to compete against himself. The law is the written transcript of God's character. How do I know this? Because Christ said it himself. Christ basically stated that when he says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 25 and 26, he lays out the principle. He says every kingdom, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now, if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. And then God asked the rhetorical question, how then will his kingdom stand? But now here's the thing. Jesus said, I didn't say it. Jesus said, now Christ said every kingdom. So that means even his own kingdom operates on the same principle. Huh? Are you with me? I'm teaching. I'm not trying to tickle your ears preaching this morning. We're going somewhere. He said every kingdom. So that means even the kingdom of heaven operates on the same principle. The kingdom of heaven will not stand if it is divided against itself. So that means... So that means that even his own kingdom operates on the same principle, cannot be divided against himself. Therefore, and here we go, if the Bible, if Bible statements are correct concerning God and the law, and if those statements concerning God and the law show that the law is really a transcript, a written record of God's character, by attributing or saying the same things about the law that it says about God, such as the following. Okay, this is the Bible. And I'm gonna, trying to print out copies so that you can have this. The Bible says God is truth in John 14, 6. The Bible also says that his law is truth in Psalms 119, verse 142. The Bible says that God is righteousness, Psalms 145, verse 17. But it also says his law is righteous, Psalms 119, 172. The Bible says that God is perfect, Matthew 5, 48. But it also says his law is perfect, Psalms 19.7. The Bible says that God is holy, Isaiah 6.3. But it also says his law is holy, Romans 7.12. The Bible says that God is unchangeable, Malachi 3.6. But it also says his law is unchangeable, Matthew 5.18. The Bible says that God is spiritual, John 4.24. And again, it says his commandments are spiritual, Romans 7, 14. The Bible says that God is forever. Psalms 9 and 7 and Psalms 90, verse 2. But it also says his law is forever, Psalms 111, 7 and 8, and Psalms 119, 44. So now, if God and his law share the same attributes, it only goes to reason that if God cast out his law, then like Satan casting out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Is that, is that, is that clear? Come on, talk to me. Do you, do you get that or do I need to run back through that? That's scripture. That's not trying to, trying to work a text out of context. That's what the Bible says about the law and God. Huh? But you look at the Christian world today in general and you see that there's a big debate between God and his law. 
and look at Galatians on the surface, you would begin to think that that's really what Paul is looking at. But it's not. We got to dig deeper. We got to get into God's word. And holy, if they print those out, you can have those. The apostle Paul was too great a theologian to be sloppy in his, with his hermeneutics. So I know that that can't be the case. Paul's theology can't be wrong. Paul's method of interpreting script cannot be wrong. Paul was too great of a theologian to be sloppy with his hermeneutics. So then I got to look at this thing and go, well, then what is it? Perhaps it is we, the readers, who need to tighten up our understanding of what the apostle is really trying to say. You see, the general thought has been that Paul's primary purpose in writing the Galatian epistle was to be an apologist, an offender for the doctrine of salvation by grace over works. And on the surface, this is true. But I believe if you stop and find contentment there, if you build your house there, if you fail to dig deeper and remain just there, you'll miss the greater message and treasure that lies just beyond your reach. You understand that the Christian journey it's supposed to be a journey that takes you from glory to glory to glory. As Christians, we are supposed to be moving through the first and second heavens to get home to the third. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you've got to be the person that's moving from glory to glory to glory. You can't trip and be content with just glory. Because you know that there's always a greater glory just beyond. The closer you get to God, there's a, a greater glory. Some of us are content just to stay where we are with our knowledge and understanding of the Bible. Oh, I've, I've read that. I've read that. Don't you know you sound foolish? Don't ever think that you've mastered the word of God. Don't ever think that you've mastered the word of God. There are times that I think that I know the word of God, and I'll come into context in the presence of some of those individuals that I've talked about, and I understand that their power, their, their understanding of this thing is greater than mine. And when I recognize it, I just sit at their feet and I listen. Do you understand? Some of us have gotten content where we are, and, and Paul is really trying to say that you're supposed to be moving from glory to glory, from understanding to understanding. Don't you know that one chapter in the Word of God could be your daily study for your lifetime? And on the day that you check out, there'll still be meat left on the bone? Huh? What do I mean by that? That means that there'll still be truth there that you have not even gotten off the bone yet. I notice because the Bible says that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. God's words are life. God's words speak things into existence. God's words tell the raging waters of the ocean, you shall not pass this point. Huh? God's words separate the bone and the marrow. God's words hold the Pleiades together when all the rest of the universe is expanding. Scientists can't figure that out. But Job wrote about it. Huh? Thousands of years ago when God asked him the question, tell me how I tied up the Pleiades, those seven stars up in the sky together. 
to this day, scientists cannot explain it. Everything else is expanding. You look at any constellation a thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, it's going to be different. It's going to be further apart. Pleiades is held together. Huh? God told Job, I take the world and I hang it on nothing. When everybody else, all the other scientists thought that the world was and anchored to something. And we're just on a ball suspended in space. Huh? God's word. God's word. So who are you and I to come along thinking that we can just peruse through this thing a couple of times and we got God's word down. There's no mystery left. We've got to dig deeper in God's word. We've got to ask for understanding. You've got to have the Holy Ghost helping you. Instead of investing in HD televisions, you need to get concordances and commentaries and those different books and get into the word of God. I'm a preacher and I'm looking for them texts my grandmother had. And she just pull them off the top of her head. And we would go, even when I would come back, I got older, we would just go at the, and I would always leave with the start. I got to go back and get, get into the word. Because God's word is life sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. So then we know that if you think about it, God cannot be against God. And Paul, his apostle, the great theologian, could not be that sloppy with his hermeneutics to suggest that God is indeed a God, that his kingdom is divided. Then what then is he really trying to say? I would suggest to you this morning that he's trying to say, get into the context of the circumstance. Because it's really about his message, it's really about the context of circumcision, symbols, emblems versus a relationship. Hmm? You see, in chapter 2, verse 1, we find Paul and Barnabas and Titus returning again to Jerusalem. If you have your Bibles, let's go there. Let's go there. Because I want to teach, because this is important. Galatians chapter 2, <clears throat> verse 1, and I'll read, and it says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and all took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and, and, I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, least by any means I might run or had run in vain. Okay, here it comes. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. The truth of the gospel might, uh, for even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. Paul was no respecter of persons. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Huh? You see, when Paul, you came in the presence of Paul, Paul was looking at what kind of fruit you produced. <laughs> he didn't care about what title you held. He didn't care about who you studied under because you got to understand Paul studied under the best. 
Well, at least he thought he was the best. He studied under Heliel. But then even greater, uh, uh, he studied under Gamaliel. But even greater than that, Paul was educated for a time in the wilderness by the Holy Spirit. So Paul wasn't impressed by what you thought you had. If you wanted to show your pedigree, Paul would get right there with you. Let's get deep, brother. You want to break out doctrines? Come on. You want to talk about which, what school you attended? Come on. Bring it. Bring it. Bring it. Bring it. Bring it. But you better be bringing game. But most importantly, Paul knew that he, what he had got, he had gotten directly from God. Hmm? So he wasn't fearing any man. He was taught by the Christ and by his spirit. Paul had worked the scriptures. So when you came into his presence, he wasn't interested in what you were saying. It was what you were living. How you living, bro? Are you living right? There's a preacher that I've been following. His ministry is so dynamic. Some of you have heard me mention his name a few times. He's not at Venice, but he's anointed. R.A. Vernon. And he was saying something the other night that I got, and he said, you know, some of you, he's talking to a group of, a group of preachers, and he said, some of you want to have mega churches and mega ministries, and you're working hard. You can't understand why the Lord isn't blessing you. He said, perhaps it's because you're not ready for that kind of blessing. He said, you have to be accountable. God has to know he can trust you. He said, God, in his ministry, he, all of his money, he's got his money, his church has got incredible, they're doing incredible stuff in Cleveland. But he says God has learned that he can trust them. With the, when, the, when the memberships come and his church grows, he takes that money and he puts it back to help the poor. He says, if you ain't making a difference, why is God going to send you resources? They bought about four or five cars to different members just because they're faithful. He said, people need to know that God blesses them now. Huh? People need to see. He said any, any tithe-paying member can come and they just did a $40,000 audit. Every penny is accounted for. Okay? Because he said people need to see where their money's going and need to understand and see that it's making a difference not over in some place that they'll never go to, but right here touching the lives. And his church is, his, his church, his church is, he's got like three locations in one city growing off the chain. The first day they opened the, the last location, which seats, uh, which seated uh, 1,000 or 1,700, the line was going around the block. It was overflowed. He said, but God, he's learned that God can trust him with the resources. But other than that, he said, be, as he's been growing in his ministry, he has to be, his character has to be above reproach. He said, you know, I've got members that I don't even know. I've got members all over the city. People know me. They see me. He's at that level with Jake's. He goes, I can't be ordering pornographic stuff on my cable network. I could have a bit that works for the cable company or the satellite company. R.A. ordering what? He said, I can't have checks bouncing all over the place. I've got to be a good personal financial steward. I can't have people that work at the power thing going, R.A. Vernon, pass it on, pay his bill. He's saying that God would take some people and use them, but he can't put them in a position of preeminence because when they get there, their per personal private life isn't where their public life needs to be. Huh? But I would suggest to you, even going one step further this morning, that that could even be the case with churches. Some churches aren't growing because as much as they work, maybe they're not ready to receive. 
because people will come in, people are looking for real. They want, they want real, they want to really see Jesus. People have been too burnt, too jaded. Even now, the country's turning on Obama. Because they realize, after all, what some of us have been saying all along, he's just a man. People are tired of putting their hopes in something only to have it crash on the shore of disappointment. And don't you know that the church is the last stop? After you've run through your political charismatic leaders and revolutionaries and your social program, this and that and this and that and all these causes, when you come to God, if God fails you, what did Peter and them say? He said, Lord, where else can we go? And there are some people that are literally at the end of their rope. God can't play with them having them come into a place that's not ready to receive them and being all that the church is supposed to be. Huh? And, I'm, and that goes to me. <laughs> so just understanding that. So, so, so getting, back, getting back to the point. So, so Paul is saying that, 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 that you know, it, getting into this, this circumcision thing, he's saying the, the, the thing that he's, that's, that's, the, that's the center point of Galatians. That's the big argument. He says, but on the contrary, picking it up again, picking it up again, uh, on verse 7, chapter 2, but on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was for Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, John, Cephas, when, when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Okay, so what is the significance of that? He goes to Jerusalem for the second time after a number of years. Jerusalem was the headquarters. That was the conference headquarters for the worldwide Christian church as it was growing then. That's where all the big heavyweights were. Peter, John, Jesus' brother. That's where all the big, all the other apostles were there. Paul goes back there and he relays to them the first time how he came into the message and, and, he, and he shows them basically he gets, his, he gets certified. Brother, you are a full-fledged apostle. We recognize that God did something miraculous in you. And your credentials are all legit. You are, you, are, you are God's apostle. Fourteen years later, Paul goes back and he Titus with them. Titus was Greek, a Gentile. Now, the first time he went, he took Timothy with him, and he had Timothy circumcised. Now, why is circumcision so important? Titus was a test case. You got to understand this. Titus was a test case. He was a Gentile. The term circumcised introduces a central topic of the Jewish false teaching on which Paul uh, one which Paul addresses repeatedly in Galatians, and he does it in Romans. Unlike Timothy, whom Paul had circumcised because Timothy's mother was Jewish, Titus was not circumcised. Circumcising him would have been a sign to all the other Gentiles that following Jewish law was required for a, for a person to become a Christian. So the fact that he took Titus, who was Greek, and they did not circumcise Titus, was a statement. Now, it seems like a small thing you and I in our day, we would read over that, but that was a big thing back in the church. And what had happened is when Paul had left the churches of Galatia, others from Jerusalem came who were false. See, Paul will call you what you were. He says, now, not everybody that's with us is with us. 
They are some of those that come in wearing the garments that we wear, but their heart is not with us. And they would seek to bring harm to the kingdom of God. Church, you got to learn that. Not everybody that comes in here is meant to be in here. Now, I'm not saying that we can always tell who they are, but when they expose themselves, you got to remember that they expose themselves and recognize. Because Paul was always very quick to call people false brethren. Hmm? As Christians, we think we're supposed to just love everybody and be naive. You'll get that Murphy ran on you. Murphy. <laughs> so Paul is saying that some false brethren had come in, and what they had done is the very liberty that they had had in the gospel through Christ, they tried to put them back in the bondage with symbolism. Okay? I know it seems kind of dry, but I'm going someplace because symbolism affects you and me today. Okay. But that is the context of all of Galatians. That's the context. It's circumcision. The men must be circumcised, otherwise you are not a Christian. That's why Paul says, you're following the law. But wait a minute, Pastor Drummond, wait, whoa, whoa, okay, you lost me there, Pastor Drummond. You just said the law was a transcript of God's character. So now how then is following the law a bad thing? If the law is supposed to be all that God is. Well, because there's two laws. There's two laws. There is the ceremonial law, i.e., a ceremonial law are those laws that prophetically pointed towards God's anointed Savior and God's methodology of saving lost man through his own provision and sacrifice. Okay? Ceremonial laws. How do you think people got saved before Jesus came? Well, what was the purpose of the ceremonies? The ceremonies were to say, the ceremonial laws were to say they were symbols and types to give you an idea that by following this symbol, by following this type, you were placing your hope in a savior who had not yet come but was to come. When you killed that lamb, ceremonial law. When you killed that lamb, you were saying, Lord, I know one day you're going to provide your own lamb. I am believing, God, that there's nothing that I can do on my own to earn your salvation, but I am depending on this sacrifice, the sacrifice that this is pointing to, and I am placing my hope in that sacrifice. Because if there was no ceremonial law pointing towards the Messiah to come, then only those who were born at the time of Jesus on would have the opportunity to be saved. Do you understand that? There would be no Moses. There would be no Abraham. We always like to talk about how Abraham was the father of faith. Well, it went right there. Abraham was, look, wait a minute, wait a minute. Thank you. Let me get off Abraham a moment. Job. What did Job say? He said, I know that my, come on, now we just run that, but you don't ever really think of the significance of that. I know that my, re... how could he know that his redeemer liveth? Huh? Come on. Job was a contemporary of Abraham. Job was before Moses. So how did he know about a redeemer? Huh? Am, am I making this plain? Am I reaching you guys in the 
Do you understand what I'm saying? God's power, God's methodology, God's grace, God's willingness to save you and I is so deep, so heavy that he was able, Jesus was able to save in both directions, backwards and forwards. Huh? Come on, not even Kobe is that sweet. Jordan ain't that bad. Huh? Jesus is able to save in both, direc- both directions, front to back, 360. If you believe in me, if you can just have faith, you will be saved. Huh? That's the God we serve based on his word. So how do they do this? They did this through ceremonial laws that showed something. Now, 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 circumcision is a ceremonial law. And what happens? When the genuine article shows up, I've got this mic stand right here by this horn. This mic stand is representing who? No, it's representing Martin Murphy. (laughs) It's right by the horn. It's right by the horn. Okay? So that means at that place, that place is going to be, well, why is that mic there? Because when, it's right by the horn, when, because that's where Martin normally stands. He's not there now. That's his spot. And so I'm thinking about him because every time I look over and I see that mic, I'm thinking of Martin, right? Everything's straight. I can't use you right now. I use the bad. I got to use a substitute for a substitute. But when Martin shows up, he's in the building, then I don't need this substitute anymore. My attention goes off the substitute, the symbol and it gets focused on that which is the real. Okay? But the danger sometimes with symbols is that sometimes when the real shows up, we still keep focusing on the symbol. We're content with the symbol. So when you understand the context of what circumcision was, Circumcision, if you go back to Genesis 17, you can write this down and look at it at your leisure. But go to Genesis 17, verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 27, and that's where God laid out his covenant with Abraham. And circumcision was really just saying, I am separated to you, God. I am separated to you. Now, some of you are going, he's still on the circumcision stuff, but don't you know that we all use symbols every day? Just write that down. You can go back and look at circumcision and what it's associated for, and then I'm going to come back and touch it. But we use symbols every day. Even today, we are people that like symbols. The English word symbol comes from the Greek word, from the Greek word sum, meaning together, and balian, meaning to throw. Symbols gather together multiple meanings and present them as one. The Greek root balian implies that this happens with a certain suddenness. In other words, symbol, a symbol to those who appreciate it instantly bespeaks a complex message in totality as if it were one. We, you and I to this day, use symbols. You're driving down the road and you're looking at your gas tank and you are on your way somewhere in the desert. Okay? Where would y'all be heading into the desert? I don't know, but y'all know. (laughs) 
Some people go there more than others. <laughs> Got to liven this thing up. Y'all trying to fall asleep on me. That's all right. When we come through and start tapping people, oh, could you read this text for me? <clears throat> but you're driving through the desert and your gas tank is low. You're getting kind of concerned because that's not the spot to be running out of gas from. And then all of a sudden you see a sign at the side of the road. You see a fork. You see a bed. And boy, you're really happy to see that last one. You see that gas tank. Huh? And all of a sudden your heart picks up. Haven't even seen the gas station yet. But you just saw the symbol. And you know that you're in the proximity. Huh? You know that you're heading in the right direction, but help is on the way. We work and live with symbols all the time. Do you know that gangs, when I was growing up in New York, we had a number of gangs. And I was in one for a minute. And you know the first thing that they always told you, you had to get beat down to get in one and beat down to get out of one. And you had a thing. Motorcycle gangs have it. They don't do it so much out here, but they just do colors. But that's what it's called. It's called colors. And if you was with the black spades, it was an all-black gang. On the back of your jacket, you had this white border with the words black, in black lettering, black spades. You had a black spade, like the cards with a dagger through it and blood dripping off the thing. If you was with the ghetto brothers, the savage skulls, you had a Nazi helmet, a German-style helmet, and a skull, and some crossbones. And it said savage skulls, Bronx, whatever your division was, or whatever. But the thing that you never do in any gang is you didn't let any other gang steal your colors. You fought for that as if it was your life. Because what gangs would do, if there was five of us and we rolled up and you was a spade and we was a ghetto brother, oh, we're going to get a beat down, but we're going to take your colors as a trophy. Because that emblem, our gang, and we would hang it in our clubhouse. That emblem, man, and you'd go into some clubhouses and you'd find Savage Skulls, Nomadic Nomad, all these different gangs, they would hang them as trophies. You couldn't go back to your boys without your jacket. You had to give an account for that because that emblem symbolized who we are as a gang and our prominence in that city. That's just a jacket. That's just lettering. That's just a symbol, but it means something. Symbols mean something. Why do you think we place so much emphasis on the flag? If the flag, when I'm in the military and the flag touches the ground, you never let the flag touch the ground. And any flag that touches the ground. I got any military people in here? Former military? What do you do when a flag touches the ground? What happens to it? You don't know? <laughs> That's the Air Force, 9 to 5. Where's Dwayne at? Us in the real military. No, I'm just pressing around. When a flag touches the ground, it gets burnt. The American flag is supposed to never touch the ground. If it, gets, if it touches the ground, it's immediately destroyed. So you handle that flag with care. You, that flag represents, why do you think when other nations are mad at us and they storm the embassy or whatever, they burn the flag? It's saying we, you know, death to America. Symbols are important, but symbols sometimes, symbols, symbols can, 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 can get to a level where they start to compete with the real deal. A symbol is supposed to show and implies what goes on in the heart. Go back and read the word of God and you'll see that the circumcision was supposed to show what was going on in your heart. I am separated to God like Samson's braids, his locks. There was no power in, the, in his hair, but it was a symbol of his connection to God. And when he gave that up, he, he, he played lightly with the symbol. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
That's why God, after a while, said, you know what? I'm going to write my laws in your heart because your ceremonial laws show that what's supposed to be in your heart. But God said, okay, you're circumcised, but you're far from me. Coming down to your street, symbols. Some of you are here in church, and your, your symbols have become church offers. Your symbols have become the Sabbath. You, that's all you do is you go to church on the Sabbath, and so therefore you think that you have a good relationship with God. For some, it's speaking in tongues. I've always wondered how people can say that the Holy Ghost comes and that's how we're speaking, and yet the church be full of gay and effeminate men. There's a, the world looks at that and it goes, that's foolishness. Symbol, Sabbath can be a symbol. Adventism in and of your, your denomination can be a symbol. I remember one time I was out there, I was smoking weed. I just smoked, smoked a blunt, and I was out in the Bronx, and I was just chilling, and we were going downtown somewhere, and there's this dude that came up, and he, he tried to witness Jesus to me. And I was like, and I looked at him with disdain, because, you know, I was an Adventist. And I said, man, bro, I can't get with you, man. You don't even keep the right day. I'm just being for real. I'm being for real. That's because we can get we can get so arrogant as Adventists. You can't tell me I'm a Seventh-day Adventist. I don't eat no pork. You eat pork? I can't do that, bro. And so then I tried. I brought the Sabbath to him. He took a text, and because I hadn't been reading my Bible, it was out of context. But because I hadn't been reading my Bible, it just threw me for a loop. I had no quick response, and I just sat there and I was like, talking about liberty, Christian liberty, you know. Sabbaths be away with, talking about the ceremonial Sabbaths, but I didn't know it at the time because I just thought I knew because I had the symbol. Okay? But when, I, when he left, the Holy Spirit began to convict me because he was at least out there moving and working for God. I'm talking about the Sabbath with a joint in my hand. Hmm? We can be content with symbols, a shallow relationship. Really, Galatians is not a rebuke of the law versus grace or grace being superior over the law. Really, when you understand it and you get deeper with the Galatians is Paul extending an urgent, urgent invitation to come out of shallow symbolism and come into a loving and real relationship with the Savior who can save you. He talks about this in Romans when he says that there are those that do not have the law. They do not have the law. They have the law in their hearts and by nature, by their natural nature, they do those things that are in the law. Hmm? God says it. When God says, look, you guys are running around circumcised, you're running around keeping all these feasts and festivals, but your heart is far from me. Oh, I wish I would have those whose laws I wrote on their heart. Do you know that God is not impressed with artificial imitations? God says what he's looking for is he's looking for the genuine article, my brother. And God knows, the, how does God know the genuine article? Because some of us, we can wear our, our symbols, our emblems so good. Yeah, just because you put on a U.S. military uniform, you might be Taliban. Huh? But God says, I know who the real is. How do you know, God? Because it's got my signature on the flesh tables of their heart. Hmm? God knows who's really his. He says, I've written my laws on their hearts and in their minds. What did David say? I delight to do your law, O oh God. 
You know, it's the desire of my heart to do your will. Hmm? To have a character like yours, to be in line with you, God. So Jesus really shows up. That's why Jesus said, Jesus said, Abraham, when they said, they said, how could you, how could you, uh, how could you say you're God? You know, or, or I felt taking out, what is it? When he said, oh, he said, before Abraham was, I am. And they said, how old are you? And they were talking to that fool. Said, Jesus said, you don't really understand it. He said, Abraham, the one that you place so much into, long to see this day when I am here face to face. You're still clinging to sheep and oxen and circumcision, but I am the Messiah. You really don't understand this thing. If you did, you would really understand it the first time when I said, I am the resurrection. No, not I will be. I, the resurrection is in me, Martha. I am the, I am. I'm God. And I'm here with you now. That's what Paul wants each of us to have. That's what God desires, is that you and I would have a real relationship. Because you can come to church and be going to hell. Some of you think that you are on a good relationship with God because once a week you find yourself in church and you hear a sermon. And God is saying, that's symbolism. That's an idol. Don't you know that God destroys idols, even those things connected to the church? You remember the golden, the bronze serpent? Hmm? Second Kings chapter 2. Second, I think it's Second Kings chapter 18, verse 4. The bronze serpent that Moses made that healed him. He said, look to this thing and live. It was a representation of Christ. It was on a pole, Christ on the cross. Look up to it. These snakes are biting you, but the very thing that's biting you is going to be your deliverance. I'll turn your death to life. I'll turn your sin to righteousness. Look at the bronze serpent and live. Do you know that, uh, that, 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 that in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, I believe it is, uh, it had to be destroyed because the people were worshiping that as God? Instead of worshiping God, some of you worship church fellowship. I'm talking to the youth in the back. You come just to see your friends. Mmm. Mmm. Symbols. And God is saying that if you really want to be saved on that last day, you need to have a relationship with me. You need to have a relationship. And some even, let me, let me, the Holy Ghost is getting deeper. Some even take their Christian liberty and have made that a symbol. You have whole denominations that pride themselves in salvation by grace. God says, but I didn't save you to keep you in your sin. I saved you to transform you. You want to be a part of my kingdom. And they love to say that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But again, I ask you this question. How can a king rule his kingdom if he has no law? Hmm? How can you know what sin is if there's no law to say that outside of this exists sin? Teaching the traditions of men. Instead of the commandments of God. And so they pride themselves in their liberty. All you got to do is believe. I believe in God, says the gay person as he's going off, coming from church, shouting in the choir, going off to meet his, his fellow choir director. Hometown buffet and then beyond. I believe God is good, says the adulterer. Hmm? The fornicator, 
says all of those people that you and I, I go down the list, we're all in this somewhere. I believe. And year after year, we're the same. Well, you know, I've always had a cursing problem. That you don't have a living faith. Because that's the kind of faith that saves you. A knowledge is not going to save you. This, doesn't the word say even demons believe? Demons don't believe. They know. They kicked out of heaven. They know Jesus ain't no joke. An academic knowledge is not faith. We go through the trials that we go through so we can have a living faith. That's the kind of faith that's going to save you. What is a living faith? A living faith is the faith that changes you and me from who we are into the character, the similitude of Christ. A living faith is distinguished from an academic faith because it's coupled with works. Go back to James. Faith without works is dead. You say that you have faith, I'll show me your faith. I'll show you my faith through my works. A living faith is what Abraham said when God said, Abraham, I want you to offer up your son, your only son. You're over 100 years old. You got this son at 100. Huh? I gave you this son. Your wife was 90. I gave you this son. You love this boy. He's the promised heir. You go now and take him and kill him. And just believe in me. Now, if Abraham said, I believe, but I can't do it, no, you don't believe in me. We wouldn't be talking about Abraham. We'll be talking about Anthony or Alan or God would have got somebody else. But Abraham took Isaac and laid him out. What was amazing was that Isaac had to believe too. Yes, sir. So you trying to kill me, daddy? <laughs> I'm 14, and you're 100 and something? Oh, no, Dad. <laughs> Come on, Dad. Stop playing around. Stop playing around. Come on, Dad. You're going to hurt yourself. Stop playing around, Dad. Come on, Dad. Dad, don't let me have to raise up on you, Dad. But he had to believe, too. Abraham had to believe that if those strangers it was, and then you got to go back and explain to this woman, Huh? But Abraham believed that if it was God's will, and though God said that through this child, because he tried to say Ishmael before, and God said, no, through this child. God, through this child, the father of many nations, and now you're going to have me kill him? But he had to believe that if it's God's will, that this dead boy could be raised back up. If it's God's will, that this dead body, after he stabbed it, will still produce life. He had to believe that with God, all things are possible. And when he raised up the knife, God stopped me. He said, that's what I was waiting to see, baby. I just need to see some works. Because your works have produced a living faith. Go in peace. He looked over, and there's a lamb. Because you know God had his own provision. There was a ram. That's the kind of faith that saves. And the truth is... A lot of times, I don't have that faith. Huh? And the truth is, don't trip on me, because I've been watching y'all. I ain't Paul, but I still check around every now and again. I did some inquiries. I got a dossier on all of y'all. Y'all ain't got that kind of faith either. A lot of times. But that's why God is bringing these things our way. Think it not strange, beloved. When fiery darts and trials and tribulation come your way, just know that all things work together good. Huh? God is trying to produce that living faith in us. Today, we all have the opportunity to move beyond shallow symbolism and move to salvation by having a living faith based on a foundation of relationship.
a dynamic relationship with Christ. If you want that, please stand your feet. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It's a gift. You and I cannot earn it. Knowledge of the scriptures does not equate to faith. Huh? That's why a lot of times women have greater faith than men. They've got that faith that really impacts the family. Hmm? Because as men, even when we love the Lord, we, we just want to, we want to bounce ideas. We want to, the theory of it. But you know, there's something when a mother says, you know what, I don't know how we're going to do this, but let's be just in God. Kids, my daughter has got a faith that's so much greater than me. Because she just literally believes that whatever God says, and I believe it at my outset a lot of times, but then I start trying to, as a man, I start trying to wrap my hands around it. I start trying to, you know, I start trying to wrestle, and then I start getting scared because I realize, man, I don't know what's on the other side of this, God. But Talia always believes that God is on the other side of the impossible, huh? And most of our kids, if you've raised them, they believe it. They start getting doubts because they watch us and they learn that from us. But we've got to become as a child. Plunk it down. Mom, I got to confess. When you said 10000 in a month in the midst of a depression at Christmas time with no notice, I was like, well, you know, we're going to work this thing. We maybe raised, I don't know, three, four, five thousand. 5000 I didn't tell anybody. Don't speak your doubt. You keep it to yourself. Because some people are always just throwing doubt out in the air. Don't do that. If you're going to open up your mouth to anything, just say, God, I believe, but heal my unbelief. And lo and behold, God has shown that with him all things are possible. Many of you are going through. Some might have lost their jobs. Some might be on the point of wondering, boy, I'm, I'm 90, 60 days late, and if I just late one more month, they're going to take my home. Jesus, help me. You see him cutting back your hours on your job. Some of you are frustrated. You've been trying to move ahead in a certain area in your life, and it seems like no matter what you do, there's always a setback, and I, I weep for you because that story touches my heart because I'm the same way. And you wonder and you grope and it's like, God, don't you see? But God is working something out for you. You have to believe that. You have to have faith that he is everything that he says he is. And when you feel sometimes, you know, you cry. Sometimes you got to cry. But don't stay there crying too long. Get in your word. Claim the promises of God. Understand that God's words are power and life. Hmm? Because when you do that, Whatever the outcome's going to be, it's going to be all right. Because God has got you. 